Blog Talk Radio. God save the Republic. Our fathers appealed to heaven. What did heaven do? Heaven heard. Heaven heard. Our fathers said they would treat all men equal. When they did not, heaven saw. Heaven saw. Our fathers fought each other and paid a great price. Father Abe kept the Union, but not the Republic. We forgot the Republic and placed our trust in man and suffer oppression. We appealed to heaven. What did heaven do? Heaven heard. Heaven heard. God saved the Republic. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Samuel Adams, First Chief Justice John Jay. Names synonymous with the spirit of our country. Founding fathers of the USA. Over 200 years ago, they shook off the chains of tyranny from Great Britain by divine call. Citing 27 biblical violations, they wrote the Declaration of Independence with liberty and justice for all. But something happened since Jefferson called the Bible the cornerstone for American liberty, then put it in our schools as a light. Or since give me liberty or give me death, Patrick Henry said, our country was founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We eliminated God from the equation of American life, thus eliminating the reason this nation first began. From beyond the grave, I hear the voices of our founding fathers plead. You need God in America again. Of the 55 men who formed the Constitution, 52 were active members of their church. Founding fathers like Noah Webster, who wrote the first dictionary, could literally quote the Bible chapter and verse. James Madison said, We've staked our future and our ability to follow the Ten Commandments with all our heart. These men believed you couldn't even call yourself an American if you subvert the Word of God. In his farewell address, Washington said, You can't have national morality apart from religious principle, and it's true. Because right now we have nearly 150,000 kids carrying guns to these war zones we call public schools. In the 40s and 50s, student problems were chewing gum and talking. In the 90s, rape and murder are the trend. The only way this nation can even hope to last this decade is put God in America again. The only hope for America is Jesus. The only hope for our country is Him. If we repent of our My country is me and my family. The country's also Huerta. And the governor, the landlord, Gunther Ruiz and his locusts. This little revolution we're having here. Revolution? Revolution, please don't try to tell me about revolution. I know all about the revolutions and how they start. The people that read the books, they go to the people that don't read the books. They put people and say, ho, oh, oh, ho, the time has come to have a change. Huh? 
Sit, swish! I know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the revolutions. The people who read the books, or the people who can't read the books, the poor people, and say, we have to have a change, so the poor people make the change, huh? And then the people who read the books, they all sit around the big polished tables, and they talk and talk and talk and eat and eat and eat, huh? But what has happened to the poor people? They're dead! That's your revolution. sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, now go out and get what you're worth. But you got to be willing to take the hits and not point fingers saying you ain't where you want to be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that and that ain't you. You're better than that. A palace in which there is no king or queen or dukes or earls or princes, but subjects all, subjects beholden to each other to make a better place to live. Is that too much to ask? Are we asking too much? Is it beyond our reach? Because if it is, then we are nothing but sheep being herded to the final slaughterhouse. I will not go down that way. I choose to fight back. I choose to rise, not fall. I choose to live, not die. And I know, I know that what's within me is also within you. That's why I ask you now. Join me. Rise up with me. Rise up on the wings of this plane angel. We'll rebuild on the soul of this little warrior. We will pick up his
today. All right, we got. Let's see here. Got some stuff here lined up here. Let me just make sure I'm connected. There's my chat room there. All right, very good. Let me get to my studio room. All right, let's play some. Uh, uh, let's see here. Which Sarge was here. He played this one. I got some Pat lined up, and I got something here. And go against a little communism here. Let's play this one. I would like to just take one other witness. And I've often thought over the past number of years that while a, a spy handling secrets obvious is tremendously dangerous, he can cause the death of a great number of people, a man ten times as bad as a communist in government is a communist who is twisting and warping and controlling the minds of the youth of this nation. As Hitler once said, he said, give me control of the educational institutions. And within a decade or two, I can control any nation on earth without firing a single shot. And the communists have learned that lesson so well also. What we had before is a Mr. Wendell Furry. What's he doing as of today, as of today, and as of tomorrow, teaching American youth at that once great educational institution, Harvard? <laughs> the, first, the first time, he wasn't called because he was a professor, he was called because he had been handling the secret radar material at Fort Monmouth. The first time we called him, we asked him whether he was a communist at the time he was handling secret material. Answer, I refuse to answer on the grounds of the Fifth Amendment. Did you discuss your secret material with members of the Communist Party? I refuse to answer. Have you been trying to indoctrinate your students in the communist philosophy? I refuse to answer on the grounds of self-incrimination. On down the line. Well, finally, he was, he was recalled about two weeks ago. By that time, Mr. Pusey, the president of Harvard, was getting too smart under the realization that the nation knew that he had a privileged sanctuary for Fifth Amendment communists at Harvard. So the, the tune was changed. He forgot, however, that he could not control the question. The question, were you a member of the Communist Party when you were handling secret radar material in the middle 40s, again in the early 50s? Answer, yes, I was. Question, were there communists working with you on secret radar material? I'd rather not answer that. You were ordered to answer. Yes, there were. How many, Mr. Furry? Oh, five or six. Six, I guess. What were their names, Mr. Furry? Answer, I refuse to answer because I will not be a party to making their names public. Besides, I think this committee does not have jurisdiction. I said, all right, Mr. Furry. You're not the only one who dislikes this committee. Let me ask you this. Is there any agency of the government, a grand jury, the FBI, 
any committee you can think of, to which you will give the names and all of the information about those who are part and parcel of the communist conspiracy working on our secret radar. Answer, Mr. Senator, I won't answer that until the time comes. Well, I may say that Mr. Furry's case will be submitted to the Senate and then to a grand jury, and much as it breaks my heart, we may remove some of the Fifth Amendment communists from Harvard. <coughs> McCarthy there, uh, for the people out there listening to the archives. Uh, let's play a little Patton, huh? Some audio, live audio with Mr. General Patton. California, welcome home its fighting son, General George S. Patton. Ladies and gentlemen, here comes General Patton to the microphone, standing very erect. And now, he's about to speak. Your Honor, the Mayor, General Doolittle, soldiers, ladies and gentlemen, it's very difficult for me to speak because what you have just seen is not a phantasma but damn near a reality. And God forgive me, I love that sort of war. Coming over here, over a thousand miles, Ladies and gentlemen, they're adjusting the microphone at this time for General Patton. The crowd is not hearing him, and they can hardly see him because of all the smoke from this simulated battle scene down here. They have adjusted the microphone, and he's about to speak again. Coming over here, The bridges were there. The houses had roofs. 
it suddenly occurred to me that those of you who have not been at war do not realize what those of us who have been at war have done for you with our blood and your money. When I think of that vicious fight 
in which 40,000 Americans died in the wounded. Beginning on the 8th of November and terminating on the 19th of December, when we had to go somewhere else and kill other people. Mud, rivers, mud, rivers. We built 2,000 bridges. Your friends, your relatives, waded 20 rivers, 20 big rivers. Many of them didn't get caught. Many of those who didn't get caught had not been found. The rivers were all bad. Then, from the 22nd of December until the end of February, fields of snow covered with dead. Dead men in awful conditions. When a man is killed at 17 below, he freezes like that. And he freezes in nasty colors. I am being as horrible as I can. I am living up to my name But I don't enjoy it. I'm trying to bring back to you the back what these souls have given. I'm trying to bring back to you the back of the things that General Dolan and I have gone through. God damn it, it's no fun to say a man that you love. Go out, go out and get killed. And we have to say it. And by God, they have gone. And they have won. But I want you to remember that the sacrifice that these men have made must not be in vain. This war, as I say, is only half one. Be 
over the past number of years that while a, a spy handling secrets obvious is tremendously dangerous, he can cause the death of a great number of people, a man ten times as bad as a communist in government is a communist who is twisting and warping and controlling the minds of the youth of this nation. As Hitler once said, he said, give me control of the educational institutions. And within a decade or two, I can control any nation on earth without firing a single shot. And the communists have learned that lesson so well also. What we had before is a Mr. Wendell Furry. What's he doing as of today? As of today, and as of tomorrow, teaching American youth at that once great educational institution, Harvard. <laughs> the, first, the first time, he wasn't called because he was a professor, he was called because he had been handling the secret radar material at Fort Monmouth. The first time we called him, we asked him whether he was a communist at the time he was handling secret material. Answer, I refused to answer on the grounds of the Fifth Amendment. Did you discuss your secret material with members of the Communist Party? I refused to answer. Have you been trying to indoctrinate your students in the communist philosophy? I refused to answer on the grounds of self-incrimination. On down the line. Well, finally, he was, he was recalled about two weeks ago. By that time, Mr. Pusey, the president of Harvard, was getting to smart under the realization that the nation knew that he had a privileged sanctuary for Fifth Amendment communists at Harvard. So the, the tune was changed. He forgot, however, that he could not control the questioning. The question, were you a member of the Communist Party when you were handling secret radar material in the middle 40s, again in the early 50s? Answer, yes, I was. Question, were there communists working with you on secret radar material? I'd rather not answer that. You were ordered to answer. Yes, there were. How many, Mr. Furry? Oh, five or six. Six, I guess. What were their names, Mr. Furry? Answer, I refuse to answer because I will not be a party to making their names public. Besides, I think this committee does not have jurisdiction. I said, Jurisdiction, very interesting, very interesting. All right, uh, let's see here. Let's go to uh, General Patton here. Patton's death, accident or murder? Accident or murder? exaggeration to say that George S. Patton was one of a handful of generals from World War II whose celebrity has endured for over 70 years. 
He was probably the most famous American general of the war, or certainly in the top three household names, alongside General Dwight D. Eisenhower and General Douglas MacArthur. Patton led armies to victory in North Africa, Sicily, and France, Germany, and in the latter campaign, breaking out to race east, ending World War II just inside Czechoslovakia. and fated by all the Allied nations, many don't know that his final few months were marked by depression, anger, and controversy. His premature death in December 1905, at the age of only 60, has become the subject of intense speculation. Was it an accident, or was he murdered by a shadowy conspiracy of Allied leaders fed up with Patton's anti-Soviet rhetoric and embarrassing faux pas? Had George S. Patton become a liability instead of the asset he had once been during the fighting in Northwest Europe? Patton was a brilliant, though difficult, man who was not slow in stating his opinions, many subjects, and whose behavior often led to problems with the Allied authorities. Great left. The first four hours, we passed over a destroyed land. Utterly destroyed. You who have not seen it do not know what hell looks like from the top. That's what Germany looks like. That's what Austria looks like. That's what any place the 8th Air Force and the 3rd Army went on looks like. You must remember this. That from Brest to various towns in southern Germany and Austria, whose names I can't pronounce, but whose places I have removed. <laughs> the trail of the Third Army and the 19th Tactical Air Command and the 8th Air Force is marked by more than 40,000 white crosses. He first commanded U.S. troops in action during World War II during Operation Torch, the Allied landings in French North Africa in November 1942. And then in the Anglo-American invasion of Sicily in July 1943. flamboyant dress, and peppery language won him many fans among the divisions he commanded and in the Allied press and public. Some of his decisions and orders brought him censure from higher command. An early example was his illegal order to his army made in a public speech on the 27th of June 1943, just before the end of Sicily, that they should take no prisoners. 
Unsurprisingly, some U.S. soldiers cold-bloodedly executed 73 Italian POWs following the capture of Biscari. Two soldiers were placed on trial for this war crime, but Patton's order made for an uncomfortable situation for the Allies, keen to brush the entire affair under the carpet. To prevent the reputation of America's most famous general and the U.S. Army from being tarnished, the investigation of Patton was dropped by order of Patton's superior, General Omar Bradley. Patton's behavior was often only one step from a scandal. Just a few weeks after the Biscari murders, Patton physically... If you have an old roof, you may qualify for a complete roof replacement as part of a metal roofing slapped a U.S. soldier across the face inside an evacuation hospital. The man was suffering from combat fatigue, something which Patton did not tolerate. That was on the 3rd of August, 1943. But Patton again lost his cool with a soldier suffering from combat fatigue a few days later at another evacuation hospital he was visiting. When the private told Patton the reason he was there, Patton lost his temper, calling the soldier a coward and a disgrace. You ought to be lined up against a wall and shot, shouted Patton. There were further incidents, most famously towards the end of the war, when Patton ordered a task force of tanks and infantry to go 50 miles behind German lines to liberate an officer's POW camp at Hammelburg in Germany. Task Force Baum, which I made a video about some time ago, link in the end screen, was a complete fiasco. 314 men, 16 Sherman tanks and many other vehicles set out, and only 35 men and no tanks and vehicles returned, all the rest being killed or captured in March 1945. It subsequently emerged that Patton's son-in-law, Colonel John Waters, was a prisoner at the camp. The press attention was most unwelcome to General Eisenhower and the Allied cause, and it looked as though Patton had used his power to send a half-thought-out rescue mission to rescue his daughter's husband, heedless of the cost in American lives and equipment. It was an abuse of power, but so successful was Patton's handling of his U.S. Third Army in pushing through Germany, the episode was hushed up. Another problematic subject was Patton's increasingly antagonistic attitude to America's ally, the Soviet Union. Patton did not want to stop his army at the Bavarian Czech frontier and did allow some units to push into what would be Soviet territory in April 1945. He famously said of Russians, quote, I have no particular desire to understand them except to ascertain how much lead or iron it takes to kill them. Unquote. His fellow generals and allied leaders did not much like Patton for a variety of reasons. Some thought him overrated as a general, an accusation also leveled at another flamboyant World War II leader, British Field Marshal Sir Bernard Montgomery. Interestingly, Montgomery got on very well with Patton and admired him. General Eisenhower knew Patton's value, saying after his death, quote, It is no exaggeration to say that Patton's name struck terror the hearts of the enemy, unquote. General Bradley, however, disliked Patton in every way possible, and General Sir Alan Brooke, the British chief of the Imperial General Staff, called Patton, quote, a dashing, courageous, wild, and unbalanced leader, good for operations requiring thrust and push, but at a loss in any operation requiring skill and judgment. 
President Harry S. Truman did not rate Patton in comparison with the glowing praise heaped upon him by his predecessor, President Roosevelt. Truman compared Patton to two other egotists, General MacArthur in the Pacific and to General George Armstrong Custer, who had died at the Little Bighorn in 1876. We could go on with all this all day. Suffice it to say that Patton had plenty of admirers and detractors in the Allied camp. But enough of the latter to wish him harm is hard to say. What is certain is that forces managed to keep Patton out of the Pacific War. As soon as Germany was defeated in early May 1945, Patton demanded a transfer to the Pacific and an army to lead. It seems odd that so famous and capable a general as Patton was denied such a high-profile role in the last fighting in World War II. Patton, waiting to hear whether he would get such a command, flew home to Bedford, Massachusetts, via Paris and London, arriving on the 7th of June 1945. He spent time with his family and gave a speech before an audience of 20,000 at Hatch Memorial Shell, an outdoor concert venue in Boston. He again exhibited a gross lack of judgment, saying that a man who dies in battle is, quote, frequently a fool, unquote, which considering the number of bereaved mothers and wives in his audience was an appalling thing to say. Patton then gave more speeches before huge audiences in Denver, Los Angeles, and Washington, D.C. In the meantime, Secretary of War Henry L. Stimson had decided that Patton would not be sent to the Pacific Theater. Instead, he was ordered to return to Germany as military governor of Bavaria. Bored and restless, the appointment was ill-chosen. Patton viewed the denazification process that the Germans were being subjected to as not very important. He remained concerned with the Soviet menace to Europe as the early stages of the Cold War began to unfold in occupied Germany. In his opinion, forcibly expressed to U.S. Secretary of War Robert Patterson, the U.S. Army in Germany had to be kept at full strength, and he bitterly regretted having had to hand back territory his Third Army had liberated in Europe to the Soviets. Quote, we have had a victory over the Germans and disarmed them, but we have failed in the liberation of Europe. We have lost the war, unquote. Patton's attitude to the defeated Germans was another source of embarrassment to Eisenhower and Truman. He famously stated that, quote, SS means no more in Germany than being a Democrat in America, unquote. This private remark was published, creating another storm in the press, that did his reputation absolutely no good and required sorting out. Patton was also very vocal in his resistance to U.S. Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau Jr.'s plan for post-war Germany, believing that the Americans would be seen as too harsh if it were fully enacted. It wasn't helped that Patton had made many remarks that bordered on anti-Semitism, aggravating certain sections of the U.S. press against him. Writing of the destruction of Berlin, which he visited in late July 1945, Patton said, quote, Berlin gave me the blues. We have destroyed what could have been a good race, and we are about to replace them with Mongolian savages, and all Europe will be communist, unquote. Patton became more and more obsessed with the Soviet threat and angry that America was, in his view, unnecessary.
unnecessarily punishing the Germans instead of protecting Europe from the Soviets. Small wonder that some people might have preferred it if so famous a leader as Patton was silenced. Elements of the press in America, as I have said, had become rather anti-Patton, and Eisenhower relieved him of his position as military governor of Bavaria and gave him command of a paper army, the 15th in Germany. Patton took the job happily, relieved to be out of the denazification business, but his continued vocal criticisms of U.S. policy in Germany and, of course, denunciation of the Soviets continued. Patton, four-star general, the most famous American of the war, was a massive liability to the U.S. occupation of Germany and the government back in Washington, D.C. It has subsequently emerged that the Americans and the Soviets tapped Patton's phone, so concerned were they by his behavior and pronouncements. Concerned enough to kill him, perhaps. On the 9th of December, 1945, Patton was invited by his chief of staff, Major General Gay, on a pheasant hunting trip near the town of Mannheim in Germany. The party consisted of two vehicles, Patton's 1938 Cadillac 75 staff car, driven by Private First Class Horace Woodring, a 19-year-old combat veteran. With Patton was General Gay, and traveling ahead of the Cadillac was a jeep, driven by Sergeant Joseph Scruce, carrying the guns for the hunt, food, and a hunting dog. On the way, Patton ordered a stop at the Roman ruins at Zalburg, then resumed the journey, sitting in the front passenger seat to warm his feet next to the heater as it was cold and snowy outside. At a military police checkpoint, the Cadillac stopped so that the frozen hunting dog could be transferred to Patton's car, and Patton resumed his usual right-hand back seat with Gay sitting to his left. With the Jeep leading, the Cadillac followed the N38 road to the northern outskirts of Mannheim. At a railway level crossing, the Jeep passed over, but the Cadillac was held up by a passing train. After the train had passed, Woodring pulled away, noticing two U.S. Army trucks pulled onto the side of the road half a mile ahead. One started moving towards the Cadillac. The truck was a two-and-a-half-ton, six-by-six GMC, and as it was about to pass the Cadillac, it suddenly veered left directly into the car's path, Woodring having no time to take evasive action. The Cadillac collided with the truck at 20 miles per hour. Patton was thrown forward into a railing behind the driver's seat, injuring his head and neck. Bleeding profusely from a laceration that extended from the bridge of his nose to the top of his scalp, Patton collapsed into Gay's lap, unable to move. Woodring flagged down the first vehicle that he saw. It turned out to be an army ambulance. The medic, Sergeant Leroy Ogden, managed to stop the bleeding, and then Patton was driven to the 130th Station Hospital at Heidelberg, arriving one hour after the crash. Military police arrived at the scene to investigate the crash. The truck's driver, Technical Sergeant 5th Class Robert Thompson, was acting rather strangely. He seemed unconcerned by the accident, grinning constantly, and Woodring felt that Thompson and two unnamed companions may have been under the influence of alcohol. Certainly, Thompson was 50 miles from where he was supposed to be and on some kind of unauthorized joyride at the time of the accident. Two officers of the 8th 18th Military Police Company interviewed all those involved. 
No charges were filed against anyone. The accident considered a routine fender bender. In the hospital, Patton was found to be paralyzed from the neck down, his vertebrae severely dislocated. Specialists were flown in, as well as his wife from America. However, about a week after the accident, Patton started to improve, some respiratory muscle movement coming back, and preparations were made to fly him to the U.S. for more treatment. But on the 20th of December, 1945, Patton suddenly deteriorated again, and the next day he died of pulmonary edema and congestive heart failure. On the 24th of December, 1945, as per his wishes, he was buried among the Third Army's fallen at the U.S. Cemetery at Ham in Luxembourg. the conspiracy to kill Patton? Well, in actual fact, nothing whatsoever was said about a conspiracy for 30 years following Patton's death. Such a notion only surfaced in 1974 with the publication of a novel called The Algonquin Project by British writer Frederick Nolan. The book was a fictional, repeat fictional story loosely set against the real death of Patton, dealing with a murder plot to kill a famous general. It became a rather bad film called Brass Target in 1978. And from these two fictions grew the conspiracy theory of Patton's assassination. In 1979, a cash-strap former World War II OSS operative named Douglas Bazata came out of the woodwork with a fabricated story, believed by many, that he had been asked by OSS Director Major General William Donovan to kill Patton in December 1945, to shut him up as he had become an embarrassment to the U.S. authorities. On the surface, Bazata, who had earned a hatful of high decorations for his World War II daring do, looked impressive, but any cursory comparison of the events of Patton's last day, as recorded by General Gay, Patton's driver Woodring, and numerous other witnesses, is at variant Bazata's rather ridiculous story. Basically, Bazata claimed to have jammed the window beside Patton open four inches when the general was touring the Roman ruins shortly before his accident so that he could shoot him later, just before the crash, using a special rock-firing gun made by a country he couldn't remember that would look like Patton had suffered a non-gunshot wound to the head caused by the crash, which was also, of course, staged. When Patton survived the shooting and the crash, he was finished off in a hospital with poison that emulated natural death. The press lapped up Bazata's fictional story, merging it with the novel and film that stated the rumors of an assassination plot. What also fueled the mystery was the fact that no autopsy was performed on Patton, so no poison could be discovered. Well, of course, as it was considered a routine accident and not a murder case, no autopsy was necessary. Also, records pertaining to Patton's accident would be revealed to be missing from the National Archives. These points found their way into Patton's biographer Ladislas Farago's 1981 book, The Last Days of Patton. Since then, three more books have been published elaborating on the alleged plot to murder Patton, as well as introducing a new theory that he was murdered by the Soviet NKVD, forerunner to the KGB. However, no concrete evidence that disagrees with the original witness statements has been produced, 
The notion that Patton was assassinated has nonetheless entered the American national consciousness, fueled, of course, by the Internet. In the final analysis, it seems likely that George S. Patton died because of a chain of unfortunate circumstances, rather than some complex conspiracy. He was just unlucky. When great people die in such ordinary ways, people often reach for the fantastic because they can't accept the mundane. The Conspiracy to Kill Patton is merely a fictional book and movie plot that has taken on a life of its own. Until some real evidence of foul play is presented, Patton's death must remain what it was, an accident. Thanks for watching. Please subscribe and also... All right, everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Epstein, too. That was, uh, that was uh, unfortunate death, too, right? Where... <laughs> You know, see, back then, you know, they didn't have the Internet, you know. So, uh, you know, Patton there, you know, a guy died, unfortunate accident. Here's a guy who survived battle after battle, was lucky in every sense. I mean, took on the world's most powerful army at the time. Many people wanted to wipe him out and rub him out. And it just so happened a drunk driver did it on a road with no traffic. <laughs> Uh, you know, and uh, and it was one of his uh, own army in the army. It was just a guy that was just uh, decided just I decided to take a left hand turn, seeing a general coming his way. <laughs> you know, and then the other guy in 1974 who had a guilty conscience all those years finally came clean. But you know, he was a well decorated vet. But you know, we're not going to believe him, of course, because you know <laughs> he's a kook. He couldn't remember the country that invented the gun. Well, you know, the, the rock gun. And come to find out years later, they found out that, you know, he was poisoned in his hospital bed. Probably, probably. I mean, look, I, you know, I don't put it past the Russians doing that. I don't put it past anyone killing Patton. I mean, the, the guy was, he was, I mean, but let's put it this way. Today, if a guy was in his power talking about Nazis were, we killed the wrong, you know, we fought the wrong people, I'm a socialist, uh, national total, whatever. You know, if a guy was like that, they'd whack him, right? They'd arrest him. They sure as hell would shut him up, right? So, and, and Patton was against the communists. So if you're stand up against the liberals today, you know, and you know, you're know, you like Trump, right? You're a kook. You're a nut, right? It's just we live in more sophisticated times today. You know, we're not going to run into him with a truck today. We're going to do it, we're going we're gonna to do it, you know, in a different way. So I would believe that Patton was murdered. I would believe that. I mean, I don't have any proof of it, but I would say, judging by what I see and know and and, and look at the times today and understand the times today, I would say well, he probably did get whacked, you know, by the, by these criminals. I don't know. What do you think, guys? I don't know. Anybody want to queue in here? Press number one, six five seven three eight three zero six one six. Let me check the call boards here and, uh, you know, uh, look at the conspiracy theories out there. Anybody want to queue in? Uh, uh, see, not that many people are the World War II experts there uh, down there. All right. Uh, oh, I don't got any callers. Wow, that want to queue in. Wow, that's interesting, huh? Got about uh, seven or eight callers on the board, but no, nobody wants to take on Patton, huh? All right. Nobody wants to talk about Patton. All right, that's fine. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, I don't know what else to tell you about that, but uh, you know, it was uh, General Patton was a uh, you know, like I said, uh, uh, a war hero, you know, and uh, I mean, I, I kind of got to agree. He felt bad what we did to the German people. I mean, if you looked at Berlin during World War II, it was leveled. 
and the atrocities that were going on. Imagine, you know, the atrocities that were going on. If you're on boots on the ground, you can hear about them and, and the way people were being treated. And the Russians were filled. Stalin, we know, were just, they were just a bunch of filthy bastards. We know it. We know it. There's no doubt about it. No doubt about it. The Russians were terrible. Terrible. I mean, uh, I, I just don't see how else you can uh, 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 dispute that in any type of way whatsoever. But um, World War II, uh, interesting. Uh, learn a lot from the history of World War II. Uh, Mark Felton, he does a lot of good documentaries there, uh, you know, about World War II and uh, a lot of good stuff. But last night we were having a conversation, actually, about Winston Churchill. Why do you hate uh, uh, uh Adolf Hitler so much because you know Adolf Hitler they, he want, really wanted peace but Winston Churchill was an interesting character everyone will everyone will read this one here real quick everywhere one looks one finds Churchill dripping blood from his mouth but to a to be a liberal at this time was in no way um, uh, a popular move uh, with imperialism racism anti-Semitism support for eugenics and uh, uh, this uh, Suffrage him, uh, uh, as Candace Miller suggests, and a hero of the empire. Her history of Churchill's uh, daring do in the Boer War. He was a politician raised and formed by the British Empire. Churchill reached adulthood with an advanced sense of his own uh, potential greatness as someone who prized his uh, reputation for courage in the face of death. The British Empire had offered millions of people willing to travel halfway across the world to rule over people. They knew next to nothing about the chance of for that kind of adventure. Across an empire enfolding 450 million in its death grip, revolts and struggles were appearing in uh, South Africa, Egypt, and Ireland, uh, Miller writes. To Churchill, such far-flung conflicts offered an irresistible opportunity for personal glory and advancement. When he entered the British Army and finally became a soldier with the real possibility of dying in combat, Churchill's enthusiasm for war did not waver. On the contrary, he had written to his mother that he looked forward to battle, not so much in spite of, uh, as because of the risks I run. Churchill succeeded in proving himself a man by those imperial standards, fighting in India and Sudan, helping the Spanish uh, suppress Cuba's freedom fighters. And after a brief South African parliamentary career, paramilitary career, fighting in the Second Boer War, the, this experienced prime Churchill to seek similar solutions to domestic trouble. When he joined the 1906 Liberal administration, he advocated aggressively authoritarian measures to curb social disobedience. Churchill's uh, promotion in Home Security Secretary four years um, later became at a time of still rising political turmoil in the United Kingdom. Irish struggles for home rule, suffragism, uh, uh, suffragism, excuse me, strikes, waves. Churchill opposed them all violently. Um, there is much emphasis uh, in Churchill's uh, uh, biography on refuting the idea that he ordered troops to attack striking miners in South Wales, something from which he is despised by the local community to this day. What in fact happened is that Churchill sent battalions of police from London and held troops in the reserve in Cardiff in case the police couldn't get the job done. There was never any doubt that Churchill was on the side of the employers and prepared to mobilize the full force, force of British state to see matters settled on their behalf. During the standoff with armed uh, Let, Let 
Lesbian uh, Anarchist and Stephanie, he took the unusual step of assuming operational command of uh, police for the duration of the siege. As we get into the history of Churchill here, we get into uh, why, what motivated him to, where, you know, he couldn't stand Hitler, because that question was posed last night. Uh, Had his ruling class credentials been uh, less uh, esteemable, he might have been unmade by uh, his failure. Instead, he returned to Parliament in 1916, once again rose through the ranks, Minister of Munitions, Secretary of War, and Secretary of Air. He was a ferocious advocate of intervention to quell the Russian Revolution. He wrote ferociously about the dangers of the international Jews, communists, and their sinister confederacy, against whom he invoked the far more acceptable national Jew, Zionism, writings, which have been mystifyingly interpreted by um, uh, these biographers such as uh, Martin Gilbert as evidence, okay, as evidence. In addition to being motivated by a profoundly... uh, anti-Semitic, good Jew, bad Jew um, philosophy, the colonial uh, underpinnings of Churchill's support for Zionism were later made clear when he addressed the Palestinian Royal Commission on the subject of Palestinian self-determination, resorting to a um, bias theory for his imagery. He compared self-rule to the dog running its own manager, a right he did not acknowledge. I do not admit he went on that a great wrong has been done to the Red Indians of America or the black people of Australia by the fact that a stronger race, a higher grade race, has come in and taken its place. As an imperial tact- tactician, Churchill recommended fighting the insur- insurgency in British mandate Iraq by gassing them. Indeed, he had already pioneered such deadly weapons in Russia against the Bolsheviks. It it is important to recognize that, as with his support for aerial combat, he tended to justify this as as a humane, high-tech alternative to more brutal methods. I am strongly in favor of using poisoned gas against uncivilized tribes, he wrote, before explaining the moral effect should be so good that the loss of life should be reduced to a minimum. When some in the Indian, India office uh, um, uh, like heard about this the use of gas against natives, he deemed their objections unreasonable. Gas is more merciful weapon than a high explosive shell and compels an enemy to accept a decision with law, less loss of life than any other agency of war. Such a logic, a historian uh, reminds us, uh, uh, has underpinned some of the most uh, barbaric innovations of war. Even the use of nuclear weapons in Hiroshima and Nagasaki was justified in part as a means to save lives. Churchill, as a liberal Tory, ought perhaps to have been alarmed by the rise of fascism in Europe. Yet he was overwhelmingly uh, – uh, um, uh, uh, he, believed, he believed Mussolini to be a good ruler for Italy and fascism to be useful bulwark against communism. His nationalism, militarism, and support for social order and tradition colored his interpretation of the emerging movement. With fascism as such, he had no quarrel, the historian Paul Addison writes. In February 1933, he praised Mussolini as a great lawgiver among men. Paul Mason adds that, that, that Churchill thanked Mussolini for having rendered a service to the world in his war against communism, trade unions, and the left. 
Visiting Italy in 1927, he declared, If I had been an Italian, I am sure I should have been wholeheartedly with you from start to finish. Your triumph struggle against the, uh, uh, the uh, appetites and passions of Leninism. He wrote of his intimate and easy relations with Mussolini, adding that in the conflict between fascism and Bolshevism, there was no doubt that there my sympathies and convictions lay. In 1935, Churchill expressed his admiration for Hitler, in fact, and the courage, the perseverance, and the vital force which enabled him to overcome all the resistance which barred his path. Explains, the while Churchill didn't approve of the Nazi regime's persecutions of the Jews, it was the external ambitions of the Nazis, not their internal policies, that caused Churchill's most alarm. But which external ambitions were troubling and which weren't? Italy's invasion of Ethiopia in no way perturbed Churchill. That was far off in a zone seen as a legitimate for colonial conquest. As for the Third Reich's, many of its strategic and territorial conceptions drew inspiration from the British Empire. This might entail a war of annihilation against Jewish Bolshevism. And it is difficult to believe that Churchill or anyone else in the British ruling class would have had a problem with that. But expanding across European mainland was another proposition. In other words, fascism only became a problem when Churchill recognized a threat to the British Empire and the European order of nation-states to which it was integrated. Only then, and only that regard, did fascism become worse than communism. I don't buy that. By this writing what's a bit I don't buy it at all I think this is propaganda right here that I'm reading I don't think that this is true I think Churchill uh, I, I just don't see it you know I, I just don't see it why his flip because he could have made a deal with Hitler I don't I, I mean I just don't understand it I just don't get it I don't, I don't buy this somebody asked me to read this they said this could be the answer to what you were talking about the last night but I don't buy it I don't buy it at all I'm not going to read the conclusion of it because you know, I, I, I'm not even going to get into the Vietnam. I'm not, I'm not going to get to get into this. It's all crack, 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 crack of crap. Uh, war and imperialism, conservatism. Uh, I don't buy it. I don't think that. I don't think that's why Churchill. I don't think that. I think they depicted a story there of not how Churchill really was and what he believed. I just don't buy it. Uh, any. Uh, Anybody else out there want to comment on uh, Churchill and what we talked about last night, too? We did talk about that last night, a little history on Churchill. I don't know if anybody can get in here on the phone lines or not. I'm not sure. Don't know. Could be that they're not able to. I'm not sure. All right, that's fine. All right, well, any callers here want to comment here tonight? That's pretty much my documentary pieces. Uh, if you want to comment on last night's podcast here with uh, Dr. Peter Ventura and uh, them two going back and forth there about the Bible, you can. Uh I don't know if the callers can get in here tonight. Maybe you guys can't get in. I'm not sure. I don't know. I only got a couple of people in the chat room tonight. So, all right. Well, I guess I'm going to get ready to wrap up the podcast here for tonight. We're going to cut it short. Uh, if you missed it earlier there, uh, uh, we did a little bit of documentary there. Uh, news of today. No, I'm not going to get into the news of today. Uh, we'll wait until tomorrow night for that. Um, all right. I guess uh, we'll wrap it up uh, and uh, wrap it up for this evening. Uh, Understanding the times in which you live today. Thank you very much for joining me, those who were listening there. Now let's set the record straight. There's no argument over the choice between peace and war. But there's only one guaranteed way you can have peace, and you can have it in the next second. Surrender. 
Admittedly, there's a risk in any course we follow other than this, but every lesson of history tells us that the greater risk lies in appeasement. And this is the specter our well-meaning liberal friends refuse to face, that their policy of accommodation is appeasement. And it gives no choice between peace and war, only between fight or surrender. If we continue to accommodate, continue to back and retreat, eventually we have to face the final demand, the ultimatum. And what then? When Nikita Khrushchev has told his people, he knows what our answer will be. He has told them that we're retreating under the pressure of the Cold War, and someday, when the time comes to deliver the final ultimatum, our surrender will be voluntary, because by that time, we will have been weakened from within spiritually, morally, and economically. He believes this because from our side, he's heard voices pleading for peace at any price, or better rest than death, or as one commentator put it, he'd rather live on his knees than die on his feet. And therein lies the road to war, because those voices don't speak for the rest of us. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shotters around the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. Winston Churchill said the destiny of man is not measured by material compositions. When great forces are on the move in the world, we learn we're spirits, not animals. He said there's something going on in time and space and beyond time and space, which, whether we like it or not, spells duty. You and I... Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.